Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Tom Granat is a solution engineer at Lightrun. Tom joins us today from Tel Aviv in Israel. Tom Granat, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here, Robbie. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? So uh, the first one is kind of is kind of banal, but I do think it it it, it wins by a by 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 a large margin, which is good good documentation. So it's not really about the docs themselves, which are of course important to have and important to you know that the, they're organized and well structures and everything. It's fine. But the actual bug reports that define the issues that happen inside a system are even more important than that because they give you this glimpse into this mind of the developer currently working and debugging some sort of bug in the system. And then when you're re- approaching it, I don't know, two, three, seven years into the future, if it's a well-maintained software that is still around for, at that time, then you can almost, if you are if you have enough familiarity with the code base, you can almost kind of see the next steps when the developer is working, when you're reading the bug report, you're thinking, right, so that person did this and then this and then this, and I can also see myself doing this and then this, but maybe instead of step three, I would have taken something a bit different. And then the path towards success is much, much shorter. And I, I do want to kind of specify what I what I mean by, by a good bug report. So it's not just, you know, complete stack traces and understanding exactly what is going on inside the system at any given point, but it's it's contextual. It's the opinion of the developer while he's working or she's working through the problem, kind of trying to break it apart and see what's happening inside of it. This is something that not many people do. I do that when I write, when I when I debug, I, I work through it by writing what I think, and then at the end I have a nice write-up that deals everything everything I thought through while I while I was debugging, and I find again I'm probably biased, but I find that these reports are the things that I look for the most in um, kind of in, in in software that I consider well-maintained. It's something that is specifically apparent to me. I'm, I'm curious just to make sure that we're all, and the listeners are all on the same page as far as what you're re- referring to as like, say, a bug report. Are you referring to more so on the, as you mentioned, like software developers and the stack traces, maybe provide a little bit more context there for, for the listeners? Right. So my perspective on uh, bug reports is kind of more in the kind of the ticketing front. So I'm, th- I'm thinking um, a developer caught a bug and then reported on it in a way that is available for another developer to maybe work on it. And then the other developer who, who came in to start working on, on the bug and trying to figure it out, they wrote what they thought while they were fixing the problem. So a bug report is not exactly the correct term. I guess an issue, basically a ticket where a bug report is being work on, worked on is what I'm referring to in, in this context. I see. Do you find that there's like engineers when they're working on resolving a bug or trying to even maybe before they even resolve it, trying to understand what what is actually happening? You know, it's kind of like you have to grasp the context of like, all right, we got an error on this specific API endpoint is triggering some sort of error occasionally. So you're thinking more in lines, okay, now there's a ticket in a ticketing system somewhere. People have been able to track down, like, here's the snapshot of the stack trace and the error. What other information do we have about, like, do we know which user it was or what they were trying to do? That type of information. But then also, like, the developer going through the process of sharing what they've learned along the way. Like, here's the conditions that we've, we seem to think that this is isolated to. 
Yes, and I'd like to kind of put this in context of an open source project, right? So if you're looking at an open source product that's, in, again, in my opinion, in well-maintained, one of the core reasons it is well-maintained, or maybe the enabler for its well-maintained ability, if you will, is the fact that there are multiple developers doing this same process at any given time, at any given kind of vertical inside the project, um, breaking apart things and writing things up as they go along. And this knowledge base, this epitome of understanding that is codified inside the issues enables more developers who are not as well on, onboarded into the project dive in and fix it better. And this is um, a bit nuanced in the sense that it what I assume many um, many people would, would think of when we're talking about well-maintained software is the actual acts of the packager, the maintainer, the people writing the code, the release manager or whatever, basically everyone who's dealing with actually distributing the software out there. But in my opinion, when I'm looking at a project and I'm saying, oh, I think this is a, a lot of love is going into this project right now. To me, that's always these like well thought out issues, like well thought out pieces of writing that are in there, um, showing the developer walking through the things as they as they kind of break things apart. I hope, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's helpful. Um, I'm always curious how you know when people are joining new to them projects, projects that have been around for a while, um, and they're trying to help out fix a bug or something. Do you, are you kind of referring to a scenario where there's more details on how this particular project goes about debugging things, or is it that do you anticipate that a lot of developers will go back and read closed tickets to see how and, and use that as for context for how they might address a different, maybe potentially similar issue or something resurfaced? So I guess this whole kind of discussion brings this. Um, I saw on Arc News a few a while back the concept of um, I think the name was Architecture MD. So basically a document that details how the architecture of the problem of the, the, the open source project looks like from the perspective of kind of an experienced developer. Mm -hmm. So if an experienced developer were to jump into the code, like an experienced Java developer will into jump into this library and figure out exactly what is going on, this document, being a proficient Java developer, will help him figure out exactly which parts are well and what is talking to what without actually having to comb through the code and all the documentation to understand what's going on. Kind of a high-level architecture overview, I guess. So in my opinion, these well-thought-out issues are not that, they're not high-level architectural overviews, but they are vertical explanations of things that allow you to kind of get a glimpse on the larger picture. So it enables you to kind of get a grasp of everything while you're working on one issue in particular. Right. So that, yeah, I can see that can be helpful just to get that, you know, as you're saying, like that big picture, because trying to map together everything, just looking at the code is, uh, there's only so much you can keep in your brain, I suppose, as you're trying to, you know, create this network in your brain of all these different pieces and then um, facets of the of a technology platform or, or a piece of software or a library, you know, might be up on an open source project somewhere. What do you think, you know, when it comes to, one of the things I've talked with a number of guests about is how documentation tends to be a difficult, a very difficult thing to maintain as well. And it's like its own challenge because it's kind of like, there's like, well, it's, it's over here. And I know you mentioned like the, like there's like architecture, there's like a markdown file in the project that can be helpful to try to hopefully keep that updated. Do you have, have you seen some good patterns or workflows for teams to remember to keep that consistently updated on a regular basis so that there's not a, um, the scenario where someone joins and then they're starting to look through a document like that and they're thinking, oh, and then they're one of their, they're like, oh, I'm curious about this one thing. And then they talk to another person on the team like, well, that's actually kind of outdated. And then you start to stop trusting the documentation that's there. And you're like, well, I guess the only way to really know the source of truth is to look at the code. So 
how, how do you how do you help and, and encourage that in a team to keep those types of things updated? Like you know, brought up like example of fixing a bug. Like my immediate issue is fixing this problem. I figured out the solution. And I've done this, but I, maybe I'm not re-architecting anything. But I might have made some changes that could make some of the documentation elsewhere outdated. Right. No, I, I get I get your point. So what, what I'm what I honestly like to do when when thinking of these systems that I want to put in place when working in a team is basically two, two, a two-pronged approach. First and foremost is these kind of content gates or like uh, PR gates, if you will, on uh, commits that you push into the code. So if the, the documentation checks and things you can do automatically to ensure that the quality stays up. But this is kind of the, the, the easier issue of like, these are the things that are easier to fix because they are easier, easier to scan for. The harder things is fixing, you know, guides, tutorials, you know, pieces that are kind of inside a documentation, but an API change from one version to another, and then you have to actually update the guide and nobody actually updates the guide later on. And I think that the core of the issue is understanding what maps to what. So a guide usually touches upon multiple API points, right? Um, so it's hard to automatically always map everything back to the specific kind of API that was changed at a specific commit and then fix that right there and then. In my opinion, the maintainer's job, and I'm also a maintainer, is making sure that these type of things, the non, let's call them, the less well-mapped out guides, guides, right? The tutorial type of things just get reviewed once every, every once in a while in an, auto, in an automatic way. You uh, either add a bot that opens PRs for you automatically to review a specific thing, or you actually have a cadence and, uh, you know, calendar invites, uh, reminders are a thing I use religiously and it works very well. <laughs> and you do that and you review like a specific portion maybe or a specific guide or something like that. And because you're already in the context, you know, oh wait, this doesn't make any sense anymore. You do a one-line change that automatically updates the, the guide to being relevant, which is, that's the whole game, right? That, that's how you keep things in sync. There's no easy path here, right? It's, it's work. Do you use the metaphor technical debt at all in your day-to-day -day work? Yes, most definitely. Um, and, and technical debt is not just you know a piece of software that, that needs refactoring. Techni technical debt is a, a person not understanding a specific part of the business well, or not understanding a specific part of the code base well. That's the two are, are synonymous in, in my opinion. So if a person is writing logic or you know is writing a new feature that's supposed to be pushed into the product, you know they don't really understand exactly how it fits into the bigger narrative of, of the product, that's technical debt right there, right? That's a, that's a person writing something without full context inside, the, inside their mind while they're working on it. So I guess if I had to, to talk about technical debt, I would actually split it split, split it in, in two, which is kind of a recording theme for me if you're following that, like two-pronged approaches to everything. Uh, so the first thing is the actual technical debt. That is usually defined, you know, code that needs, needs refactoring documentation that needs work, basically any type of technical work that needs changing but the other part the more nuanced and something that i i truly think not enough people are focusing on because it's not easy and it's it's more um, amorphic it's more it's less well defined it's this gap in knowledges of a person in the job that they're currently doing so a person needs to have again as full a context as possible into the problem they're trying to solve and if they don't then that is in, in my opinion, technical debt. If you're a technical person doing a technical job and they don't have the full contact, that's technical debt. And it's your job uh, as a team lead, as a senior dev, even as a team member for another person, if you're saying something and you know it, it doesn't click, right? It doesn't make sense. You, it, it's not supposed to work like that. Then educate, learn, or you know, at least point to the right link in the right place in the docs. You know, just. Have you, have you been in a, a scenario where you're working with some developers and you feel like they're mislabeling something as technical debt? Hmm. 
mislabeling something as tag color, that's a good question. The main thing that, that, that we're forgetting a lot of the time as developers is that, that people are people, right? So people will be people, they will be irrational, they will do things that people do. And then when you're looking at something and you're saying, there's a problem here, it immediately gets labeled as technical debt, right? It's, 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 it's technical debt because it's something we can quantify, put in the slide, put into Jira, put in whatever, and then fix. But a lot of the time, communication breakdowns, one developer who hates the guts of another developer, right? And doesn't want to work with, with that developer on, on, on something. And then that something doesn't get work on, gets piled on the technical debt because it didn't get worked on. But while it is per se technical debt, the core of the problem is not from there. It's from the breaking in communication between, between these two people. So a good team lead will notice that and not just focus on, again, checking boxes and moving things around, but on actually breaking apart this communication barrier or between the, the, the two people. I guess that that's the, the most common thing I would say gets mislabeled. Are there some specific things that you've added to say your PR templates to help make things simpler for the people that are submitting code contributions to a project you're part of to help alleviate some of the need to like follow up and check on things like just like I actually have a, a role model though so uh, there's a project i really like called uh, monica monica is a CA, personal crm system it's written in, in in php and they have a very very detailed checklist uh once you when you want to uh, submit the submit a pr including um things like you know putting your name in contributors md and stuff like that like basically a lot of things that are kind of good for maintaining a long-term open source project and it's a pretty long long-term one updating, updating the docs stuff like that if you can link to the show notes to the show notes, I can then you just give a link and then everybody can show it. I don't remember all the items now, but I do remember that whenever, and I've used the system for, I don't know, I guess five years by now. Uh, and I, I contribute whenever I can, like, a, you know, installation instructions, a bit of code here and there, just, you know, add things whenever I, whenever I can. And I always was impressed by, I forget the guy's name, but I will also, if possible, will send a link to their, um, to, to the repo. I think they're Canadian. Anyways, the, the the attention to details there is is remarkable, and I would I would if you wanna if you want an example, just just look at that one. Yeah, that'd be great. I'll definitely follow up with you after this, and we can uh, get a link for that for the for the audience. For those that might not be familiar with the terminology, what does it mean to introduce observability into your software? I, I know that that's a term and, and an approach that's been you know talked about and starting to get more traction over the last few years, in recent years at least, and even some other tools that have been kind of in the monitoring space are kind of rebranding themselves as observability because I think it's like a interesting topic, rebranding or rethinking how they're communicating about what their product does. But having said, putting that aside from, for a moment, but what, what is observability? Sure. So I would say that the core of the definition relates to how the system appears like from the outside. So there's a production system somewhere and it tells a story. It, it, uh, it spits out logs, there's metrics being instrumented on it. it. There's a lot of information being gathered at any given production system anywhere at any given time. The developer, on the other hand, or the person who's in charge of uh, monitoring the system, um, needs to have enough context in order to understand what is going on without having to do too many actions. Because software will have bugs, that's just you know, a fact of life. And it's okay to have uh, incidents if you have amount of information you need in order to solve them quickly and, and in time, and of course the tooling to fix them and, and so forth, but I'm talking about information for now. So I guess observability can be defined as the ability to understand the system, all the information in all the contexts and all the granularity you need without having to ship new code to that system. So looking at the system and getting the information you want out of it right away. That is the core of the definition, I think. 
And when, when monitoring tools rebrand themselves as observability tools, what they're actually saying, in my opinion, is that, hey, if you install Vendor X's monitoring stack, then you will now have full observability into your system. But this is this kind of bits the point in, in a sense, because it's not just about the tooling. It's also about the practices behind it. In, in the same way that, you know, not every company who's, you know, bought a CI/CD pipeline now follows the DevOps method methodology, right? It's just, um, you know, another another buzzword that, that, that people throw on when talking about tooling and systems and sometimes kind of miss the, the core part of, right? Which is, you know, taking things and um, taking processes and, and making them, them better. And observability is, is the same way. So there are tooling that is designed to make systems more observable. Monitoring systems are one subset of such tooling. But there's also practices that can enable a system to be more observable. And that's writing code in a way that makes it easier to understand exactly what's going on when something happens. And of course, to be able to add and remove information in, in an easy fashion when you need it in the next sprint, right? So if you want to add, you know, a, a piece of con a piece of information that it, that brings a lot of context, a lot of knowledge into the system, it should be really easy for a developer to do. And I'm not talking about a log line, but for example, dumping a complicated structure from memory into um, some form that can later be parsed or analyzed or things that can be worked on, you know, post haste after uh, investigating or while you're investigating, investigating a problem is also, in my opinion, considered something that can make a system more observable. It's working towards that. It's something that is a continuous practice and not just, you know, let's buy a tool and be done with it. Do you have some other interesting like examples that people can think about just to kind of like help expand like whether the context of like what, how would I go about why would I need that maybe it's like if outside of a bug so I think the the kind of the, the most interesting one is that well, I, I guess I'll preface this with something that I've seen and I think everyone has seen you know in, in recent years so release cycles are getting shorter right and it's getting, you know, you got to push software out there much, much faster. And again, CICD pipelines, and you have, you know, a lot of tooling that enables you to do that. But the, I think, one of the core things that, that are kind of an unsolved problem, I guess, or just a hard problem per se, is making sure that your features running on the actual infrastructure that is running your software and not your local machine work in the same way you expect them to. So I guess what I would be really interested in incorporating into the same notion of observability kind of put into the discussion is the fact that you validating your software, verifying that a feature is working correctly in the way that you would expect it to, would completely be part of um, this, this entire discussion. So it's not just when something goes wrong, debug it by you know breaking apart the problem and using observability, but it's a lot about enabling you to move faster because you can be more sure that this thing you just wrote actually works like you would expect it to in a production setting in the real world with all the moving parts kind of you know making all the noise with the actual load the actual system is running on in production again not just your local local environment that's just the the, the, the most I guess the the first thing that I would like people to think of you know right after you know incident resolution I guess just I'm so curious about also that approach being used to identify maybe areas that are not being used anymore. Maybe there's areas of your code that users aren't using or very, very few users and wondering like, because I think as software developers, we don't always get an opportunity to feel like we can confidently remove features or code because we're we're worried that someone somewhere is using it or we don't know. Um, and so we leave it, you know, and then we accumulate all this baggage of stuff that we may not even need to maintain anymore. And we potentially turn it off or something. So do you find that there's 
that is also another type of use case that could be used in that observability type of tooling work practice? For sure. And I would even say, I would even go further and say that basically any type of code level information you'd like to gather, which you know, code path is, is one example of, right? So is that code path reach as much as, as often as I think it does, right? Any type of application level information is valuable. So if you have a piece of code that is not uh, performing and you have a piece of code that is never reached, both of them are bad in, in different ways, right? They, they'll both cause problems and they both sh should be fixed. And I think that, again, so um, understanding that your features work correctly, debugging incidents in, in, in production, and understanding what, you can, what craft you can remove away from the system are all parts of things that I would expect, you know, a, a kind of a keen developer to observe about the system and say, hmm, that's a problem, let's fix. Speaking of, of technical debt, right? So. We'll be back with our interview with Tom in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Ravi. I wanted to take a quick moment just to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these discussions valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Also, do you know someone that I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Ravi with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, let's get back to our interview with Tom Grenut. You know, when you're looking at production level data, these tools often provide mechanisms to protect the privacy of the users that are using it. So there can be a somewhat anonymized, because I think it was an interesting thing of like, is there too much of a glimpse into individual things that are happening on a, you know, a user level that you could be like, well, this person is doing these types of things, then we can market to that person differently. And I'm curious about those types of things, like maybe on a slightly ethical front. First and foremost, and that, that every everyone who deals with you know PII, PII personal, ident person, personal identifiable information knows that um, it's 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 a hard problem, right? So you want to understand what's going on in the system, and you want to log for things. But now with all the regulations, it's harder to log for all the things you used to you know want to log. And now it's up to the developer to not only oh I guess I guess more the, the team lead and the architects who, who you know kind of con construct the entire system to figure out a way where the developer can get enough information out of the system on one end and you know not being creepy on the other end. So there's the, this like balance of things. And one of the things you know we do we do at Lightrun, which is where I work, is that we have a PII reduction feature that basically enables any type of person who uses the software to you know block out or redact pieces of information that you don't want to be persisted in the log system afterwards and you know that's that's one way that you, you can solve it but there's actually again in the same sense that, that we talked about you know observability is both tooling and, and practices you, you can have the best tooling tooling in the game and write crappy code that you know exposes all sorts of information out there and then you know who cares about the tooling just you know be, be sure to incorporate you know great tooling on one end but do your job as a team lead to construct processes that make your developers not think about it, but you know, just implement correct data structures and correct flows and ensuring that they actually do the work as developers and not just rely on the tooling, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's helpful. Um, and for those listening, I think there's just, you know, the thing around when I talk about like privacy, especially like log files or different tooling is that, you know, I've, as someone that works on other teams' projects, everyone, we get called in to help out with projects and, it's usually one of those things we identify pretty quickly. Like, you know that there's a lot of log files that have more, it doesn't have people's passwords, but it's got a lot of personal information in these some log files that we, we track down. And like, 
that stuff should be redacted or uh, obscured somehow before things get logged, right? And so the tooling should provide some mechanisms for that, and it needs to be a conversation that developers are having with their various stakeholders. How liable are we by having this information potentially lingering around on some server somewhere or showing up some cloud log monitoring tool or something? You mentioned uh, light, uh, light runs, um, you know, where, you, where you work at in the product. Could you tell us a little bit about what, what's included in light run service offering and what types of teams are maybe a good fit for it? Sure. So we talked a lot about availability before and, you know, the, the kind of the practices and the tooling. And we try and be, you know, a mixture of, of both. And we're um, an observability platform that's based around developer tooling, which means that we work inside the ID, inside the CLI. We allow developers to get information from production systems without ever having to leave, you know, either tool. Um, and one of the core features we have, we've, we allow basically um, the addition of, we call them actions, and there are logs, metrics, traces, various you know, observability types of information that enables you to inspect real-time information from the system right inside your ID. So um, if you had to understand what's going on in your application, you know, traditionally you'd have to go to the log tool, logging tool, and filter for the specific path of the specific user that just performed an action, and then kind of almost surgically try and find exactly which log line is the one that you care about, and so forth. And with Lightroom, what we do is we have this real-time process where you can, you know, right-click, add a Lightroom log, see the information directly inside your ID. It's actually a very, it's a very straightforward tool, as in you would look at it and you would say, hmm, okay, that makes sense. Uh, and that's awesome that we have that. And of course, while I'm biased. The core of the problem is evident to basically every, every developer that, that I talk to. Meaning if I want to add more information to the running system, what I usually have to do is add a logline or instrument a metric, a metric <clears throat> push to GitHub, wait for CICD to finish, wait for the release to roll, wait for the logs to reach the log analyzer, and then filter out all the all the information. Like when you can just right click and you're there. Nice. We'll definitely include links to that um, to check out the uh, the product in the show notes for everybody. You know, for those that might not be familiar, also with like with your role, you know, your your title uh, is a solutions engineer. What is a solutions engineer responsible for? So um, I was actually it was actually a it's a tra transitional period for me personally. So I I started out as a developer advocate working for Lightrun, uh, doing a lot of uh, talks, webinar conferences, well you know virtual conferences because of COVID, but you know this type of, this type of things. And I I quickly became almost enamored with what how our customers use use the tool. And um, being a startup company, there's there's the the great advantage of visibility in the sense that if you have you know a culture that 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 allows for it for you know discussions about what is actually happening in different parts of the company and we thankfully do um you learn a lot about what other, other teams are doing and then you know I'm, I'm i'm hearing all of these things that are you know um, customer success uh, people and, and you know, more customer facing people i guess are, are are doing and it's remarkable to see the approaches people take with this kind of, with the basic building blocks that we give. So they have um, metrics, for example, that we have uh, this piece of code uh, that this, sorry, this uh, action, you can basically select a method and wait for it to be invoked basically. And then when it's invoked, you can get uh, the amount of time it took it to run, right? So this is very useful for debugging what happens, you know, in long chains of methods, which where well, you're not exactly sure which method is the one acting up. And you can go inside that method and then, you know, grab, a random number of lines of code, select all of them, right-click, and see how much time this specific 
line of code took to run just to understand exactly how long that runs. And our users are using it in remarkable ways to figure out how user flows requests you know are flowing through the system and I I, I I was an SRA before a site reliability engineer before before I joined Lightrun and I distinctly recall having to work with you know having to instrument these things manually because that, that's what you do and the gap man the gap is is what I'm I, I'm really passionate about and when the uh, the opportunity came to kind of be more on the architecture side of things so going to to a customer and talking about whether how Lightroom would fit inside their specific specific use cases, and specifically, hear about what their process looks like, and figure out how to kind of pinpoint where Lightroom might be of most use. That's just a a great way to spend my days. Just a, the exact great mixture of you know people and, and tech for me. You know, it's it's important to like you know share what your customers are doing so you can help your other customers you know level up themselves, and like it's all about sharing. And get you know improving, optimizing the team's workflows and saving them some hopefully time so they can spend more time, maybe shipping new things and not just being curious and waiting to get reports back after something finally makes it to production. And you know I get I can appreciate that sort of like that context there. And then also it sounds like within the tooling to be able to like know like here's this method that we're that's being run is actually a really slow method um, versus like some older types of tools. And say older like tools that have been around for more than five years, uh, like that's like, like that's old, uh, or very like like here's the slow parts of your application, and you got to kind of go, okay, how do I go find that in the code? I'm gonna go like look up that area. I'm like, is it that method, or is it this SQL query that's running? And like, you know, what what's the uh, what's slowing things down for these for these users? And so that sounds kind of a, very compelling to be able to like see some of that stuff like maybe in your ID or something, and know that. Um, is there does does the tooling at all? Does that pretty much rely on there having been some production data around that? So if you're producing, like, say, a new set of fun piece of functionality and that's not shipped yet, are you able to get any sort of insights early on, or is that kind of just very much waiting to see? Maybe maybe that's not a bad thing, but at least in terms of like you're gonna have to kind of wait and see how like this pans out when you ship it. So there's a few different ways where you can you can instrument Lightroom in. So we have people, for example, instrumenting it on staging environment, and then they push some feature there, and then kind of kick it around to see how it behaves inside the staging environment. But one of the things that I really like is you know big data workers, and what people do, and that's 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 actually a really lovely use case for the product is we have something called snapshots, which are kind of like non-breaking breakpoints. So in a debugger, you have breakpoints. By definition, breaks the service. So a snapshot is like a breakpoint, except it doesn't break the service. Uh, so you add it, and you, you can see um, all the frames and the variables, and you know all the nice things that's happening inside the context. And what people do is they add this kind of long-running snapshot. So they will put a snapshot in this place in the code, and in this place, and in this place, and in this place, and then um, put a long kind of we call it expiry, which is a long the amount of time it stays. And then they put, for example, a 24 hours expiry period, and then they come in, you know, in the morning after you know going home and then something happened at night right and then they can look at everything that happened during that crash or not even an exception with them just like a weird the, the the code reached there but it was just something weird happened without actually you know breaking the service some information got corrupted or some weird results came in or, or whatever right the, the batch job finished um, and they get kind of in-depth visibility into exact places they wanted inside the code without having to be you know near the logs or filter for them later to figure out what happened Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? 
Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com referrals. Thanks. You know, another one thing I want to like quickly touch back on. You're talking about documentation, like open source projects and stuff, and you know, it's, it sounds like you spend quite a bit of time writing and explaining things to technical audiences. And in a lot of my conversations with other people on the podcast, we've covered a lot of ground when it comes to like trying to get better as a as software engineers on how we communicate with, say, I'm air quoting non technical audiences. But what do you what do you believe are some like key differences that you see? between these two audiences and what is most in, uh, effective when communicating to, say, technical audiences versus, say, non-technical audiences? So I, I do have to mention that I wasn't always a computer guy. So because I wasn't always a computer guy, I worked, um, actually had a, a long stint doing a bunch of various stuff. Um, I was uh, in a youth movement for many years. And in addition, um, I did, uh, I worked in finance for quite a long while. At one point, I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. I went to study psychology and did that for a long while. So the I think I actually, I, get, I think, I'm not sure, I, don't, I wouldn't want to generalize, but at least for most, you know, developers I know who, you know, have been into computers since they were like four and then, you know, that, that's all they did for the rest of, for, for the rest, you know, up until up until now. I, I spent a long periods of my life outside of tech. Right? Just not wanting to be in tech, just you know, doing other things, and I had the opportunity to um, present lectures and talk and kind of, you know, be more in front of of, of non technical audiences quite a bit. It's 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 kind of an overall generalization to say technical and non technical. I think it's more correct to say, for example, um, developers and finance people, right, or developers and you know, uh, environmentally oriented people, right, and. In the same way that you talk to developers in a certain way, and if you, you know, say object or array to a developer and you use the wrong term in the wrong place, they will get annoyed. If you use the wrong term for, I don't know, uh, for example, um, if you use, I don't know, Freud instead of some other psychology guy, which I'm blanking on now, in front of psychology people, they will also get annoyed. So the the tip is not actually technical versus non-technical, in my opinion. The tip is tailor your discussion to the audience in front of you, which sounds banal, but it actually... A lot of people just don't do it. If you go into a conversation and you don't know the audience before, and that's perfectly fine. Spend a couple hours reading about the topic. Learn the phrases. Learn who the important people in the industry or in the, in the room are. That's just you know, common sense to me. If you want to go ahead and talk to people and have your message resonate, then you have to make sure that you are in shape, that you came to this discussion when you know your stuff. And I think that's that's the core of the issue. People come to talk and kind of blah, 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 and expect the, the message to resonate without working with the people, you know, they're talking to. And that's that's the core of the issue. You know, people are people and you should talk to them in their context, in their kind of state of mind. Work on that and magic will happen. You know, you mentioned, you know, the software developers, to be more specifically. So if you're writing, we know about the, like, the stereotypical software engineer that's had a computer since they were four and they've, that's been their bubble and like we have, stereotypes around that and 
but also the industry is adapting and changing and people like yourself, like come into the industry, maybe not the first, but that's not their first career. Maybe they had some other career paths and then they come into this space. And that's definitely been something that I've noticed as someone that employs people is that we have, there was like an early era of hiring people that were very, like it was their hobby to program. And so you get paid for it. It was like this amazing thing. And then they're like, this is so amazing. And now we have people also joining, you know, not that we haven't always had this, but there's been more of an influx, I think, over the last decade of people going through boot camps. They were making a career transition from one type of completely different thing over to like, oh, this seems like an interesting career choice for me. And so they don't necessarily have that hobby mentality necessarily. And they have different contexts and different background and different communication styles. And so I feel like it gets the, the, it's gotten a little bit more blurry as far as like what communication works best for software industry as a whole, when there's a lot of different people coming from a lot of different places. And like, I don't know that always, like I've always felt like technical documentation has always been very, you might disagree with me, but it can, can tend to be terse, very specific, uh, right or wrong type of type of approach to things and like how do you introduce more humbleness into your communication or and you mentioned we mentioned on my z as an example like some of the writing on that readme is some of my favorite writing that i've ever done because i've introduced my personality into it and i've always wondered if that was appropriate or not but what's what's your take on like when you're writing documentation or details for a very specific technical audience that are maybe going to be using your tooling how, how do you try to keep it dry and terse or is like do you have other approaches you're trying to, you know, patterns there you're trying to use? Right. So actually, to the contrary, I try to make it unterse as possible or for whatever, whatever the, the opposite of terse is. So um, I think that, you know, your personality as developer shows. And it's very easy to tell when a piece has been written, for example, by um, there's a Rust developer that I follow now. His name is Amos, uh, Fessel and Lime, I think the, the, the website is. And he write long-form Rust articles. And I come, the previous company I worked for was, was a big Rust shop. And I, I was always, you know, in awe of the way he uses things like callouts on a page to show his personality because his callouts has these little monkey faces on them or whatever it is. I don't know, like a chipmunk or something. Um, and, and, that, and, that, and inside of them, there's like a more kind of personal thoughts or whatever on, on, on whatever he's currently writing on. And I, I the reason, and, and, and look at it, so I, I'm not, um, you know, while I, I haven't, you know, no touch trust in the past, you know, since I joined my, my, my current company, this person who, you know, I, I read very, very religiously b- beforehand is still so ingrained of my mind because of these personalities that he incorporated in, into the writing. So 100% you should, you can and you should incorporate writing into you know, into whatever you do. And for me, for example, um, one of the things I really like to do, and it's not writing per se, but it's like the, the blog post creation, the blog post kind of formation. There's a tool called Excalibur, which is this, you know, um, a sketch uh, sketching tool. They actually just uh, released a pro version. If you can go support it, it's an excellent tool. And what they did was they allowed this, you know, JavaScript sketching tool, and I use it to add various things into the articles that I write. So sketches and tables, and basically all sorts of these things. And these this gives my articles, I think, and I've gotten this from people, you know, a sense of because the sketching tool is kind of comics, it, it looks like comics a bit. It gives my talk this, I guess, ess- or my, my my words, this essence that it wouldn't have without it. And this is me putting my voice into my my writing, right, or my my content, I guess. Uh, and I re- that's that's my example of this. And I feel that when you're writing for other people, you should incorporate some sort of you know personality like this because people will remember. 
And this will pay dividends in the future when you're trying to make your message resonate. Important reminder for those listening, if you're writing content, and I think it's always interesting where you, you try to have a sense of like introducing your own, just making it you, but also in the context of like when you're in a company and you're maybe participating in the company's blog or the company's documentation, it's like, does the company or the organization or the open source project have a personality or not? Or like, is, is, there, is there a tone that you're trying to keep consistent. And um, that's always been like one of the things with like, oh my Z shell that I've, with the other people that have helped me maintain it, I've always been very, I want it to feel delightful for everyone that uses it. How do we use that as a value in our communication and our writing, any of the materials we're posting or just the goofy things we might do, just how can it be delightful and inviting, I think of anything. So I think that, that that's helpful to think through for, for folks listening. So if you don't, if you don't mind, I do want to mention something about what you just said about documentation and, you know, being part of the company. So, Especially, especially if you work for a startup, but even if you work for, for a larger company, there's usually a product marketing manager and, and that person is in charge of, again, it differs from company to company. I don't want to overgeneralize, but a product marketing manager a lot of the time has a lot of, you know, this decision about how the entire product looks like and the documentation is often, you know, a big part of it. And if you are, in, you know, on good terms with, with that person, that, that might help you kind of push, I guess, your agenda in that sense, but not not in kind of a, an evil way. What I'm saying is, if you think that an audience, and you know your people, if you work for a company and, and you're a developer, you usually know, if, if it's a developer, you know, or tooling or whatever, or an open source project or whatever, you kind of know the audience that you're working with because a lot of the time it's, it's you, right? So you would also use the tool if you were on the other, or you did, you know, on, on, in a previous life. So you know what works. And if you can find a way of incorporating that personal thing into um, into the documentation, and you know, Versal comes to mind. I, I don't even know what personality Versal has. I have no idea, but I know Versal, and it's you know ingrained in my mind that they write in a certain in a certain way. And to me, it always felt very repetitive, not repetitive in a bad way, but um, consistent, right? And this consistency is because someone somewhere, probably a product marketing manager somewhere at, at Versal, knows their stuff, and they created a tone for the documentation as part of the entire product marketing play. And, and you should too, if you, if you have, you know, some influencer, it's important and, and it makes a change. Having like a style guide that might be more ex extensive than like we use Oxford commas or not, but more of like, here's the, the vibe or the, the things to try to think about is we're, we're embracing and when we produce some content, does, does it meet these sorts of expectations? And there's, I like that you, you mentioned consistency that can definitely be helpful. Like, I'm thinking about some of the, the blogs or the, the companies I follow for information, for reading the materials. It's like, oh yeah, the ones that are have a certain, like I, I enjoy it for whatever reason, it resonates with me. Not every company does. And so that's like finding, you know, that, 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 um, that connection there, I suppose. So a couple of la quick last questions for you, um, Tom. So in terms of, is there a non-technical, non-software related book that you find yourself recommending to technical people that you work with on a regular basis to check out and read? Yes, The Hacker's Diet. So The Hacker's Diet by John Walker and I, it's the, I think the second or third podcast that I mentioned the same book on because it's, ah, man, it's, it's transformative. So um, John Walker is the guy who, he's the founder of AutoCAD, which is, you know, a, a modeling software. Um, a very, a very, you know, it's, it's old school, but it, it's still, you know, a de facto standard in many parts of the world in, in, in Israel as well. Um, and the, way he wrote the book was he said, I'm an engineer. And because I'm an engineer, I know engineers. And I know that engineers like to, like to think of problems as solvable things because it's literally what we do for a living. 
But losing weight is one of those things that you have many, many diet books on the topic, right? Lots of people write diet books. But nobody writes diet books for engineers. And why is that? Because losing weight is literally a physical problem by, by definition. So why aren't we looking at it as, as, you know, as we would look on you know, as debugging some problem in, in, in work? Right? What are we, why aren't we looking at it the same way? And this book, in a very, again, engineering, hacker-friendly way, if you will, talks about it in a, in, in a way that resonated with me, speaking of personality. And he's super sarcastic. It's, it's a great book, regardless of whether you want to lose weight or not. But I lost like... I don't know, uh, 30 pounds over the over the, the amount of time I, I read the book in because um, it, it has a system that resonates with me as someone who builds systems. <laughs> this, is, this is a remarkable thing. And I, I, always, I recommend it to everyone, please, if you're having struggle with your weight, I know, I, know how I, I did and I still do, please read The Hacker's Diet by John Walker. And it's a free book. It's a free book. Uh, and you know, just go and grab it. I'll, I'll send you a link, Robbie, and you can put it in the show notes later. That would be awesome. Where can listeners best follow your thoughts and ruminations about software development online? So first of all, there's my my own personal blog. So granot.dev, it's the same as my last name, .dev. Uh, feel free to, to check it out there. Also, I, I write quite a bit for, for the, our company blog. So lightrun.com slash blog. Just look for Tom Granot. All of my information is there. It's, it's usually one of the top posts, so it wouldn't be difficult to find, but it's there. And uh, I, I'm also on, on Twitter at Tom Granot, you know, exactly my name. And this is enough social media and, you know, being out there for, for one person. Excellent. Well, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Tom. Thank you so much for stopping by to talk shop with us. Thank you so much for having me, Rob. It's, it's been a blast for me as well.